locked up, they won't let me out. And I had a long day in court, stress me out. Won't give me a bail, it can't get me out. Now I'm headed to the county, gotta do a bid here. I'm used to living luxurious, I don't wanna live here. The walls is gray, the clothes is orange. The phones is broke, the food is garbage. A lot of niggas is living with these circumstances. SP's the same, I still murk your manses. Drug money to rap money, work advances. Ran and told I should have murked the Kansas. Got popped for a murder attempt. Knocked me on D block when I was burning the hemp. Had a brick in the stash. Hope they don't take it to a further extent. Locked up and they won't let me out. When I hit my cell block, know the threat be out. I'm steady trying to find the motive. Why I do what I do? The freedom ain't getting no closer. That was Akon with Locked Up, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio on WVEWLP, Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. And you're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We are on the air every Sunday at noon and replay uh, Monday at noon also. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And our shows are recorded and they will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes after the show. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. So hi everyone, I'm Anna and here in Brattleboro. Today's show focuses on women that are incarcerated at the Chittenden facility in Vermont. Also, we'll be talking about gender violence and the ways that activists and community organizations are envisioning new strategies to counter and address both locking people up and violence. And today, there's a focus on intimate partner violence. We spend the hour with Ashley Messier, Executive Director of the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative based out of Burlington, and Karen Tronsgad-Scott, the Executive Director of the Vermont Network Against domestic and sexual violence. And I was lucky to be able to interview them this past week on a very snowy day here in Vermont, and we'll be airing the interview that I did with them. We're first going to go to a song, and then we'll come back to play the interview. We're going to listen to Pussy Riot, Make America Great Again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Do you want your world to look like? What do you want it to be? Do you know that the wall has two sides and nobody is free? Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine? Sneaking all through Syria, crossing all the borderlines? Let other people in, listen to your women Stop killing black children Other people in Listen to your women Stop killing black children Make America great again Could you imagine a politician Calling a woman a dog Do you wanna do you picture the perfect leader? How do you want him to be? 
Has he promoted the use of torture and killing families? Did your mama come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine? Sticking all through Syria, crossing all the borderlines? Let down the people in Listen to your women Stop killing black children Make America Great Again, and this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We are going to go to part one of the interview with Karen and Ashley, and in this first part, they talk about the work, the overlap of the work that they do, and also a conversation about the conditions in the Chittenden facility and also the meaning of safety. Karen and Ashley, thanks so much for being uh, with Indigo Radio for the hour. I would love for you first just to introduce yourselves and the organization as some in Southern Vermont might might not know as well, um, since you're both in the Northern part of the state. So Ashley, do you wanna start? Yes, thank you very much for for having me and for having us. Uh, My name is Ashley Mastier. I'm the executive director of the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative. And we are an abolition organization who uh, works in many ways, direct service, advocacy, policy, and systemic work around uh, issues that affect uh, all women, members of the LGBTQ plus community and the intersections with corrections, uh, child welfare, addiction, um, and other systems and issues. Great. And Karen? Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here with the two of you. I'm always always happy to be um, sharing space with Ashley. I'm Karen Tronsgaard-Scott, and I'm the Executive Director at the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. Our work is really focused on, it's really focused on policy advocacy around issues pertaining to domestic and sexual violence, but we also do a good bit of training and systems advocacy and we represent the voices of 15 nonprofit organizations that are around the state that provide direct services to survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And in Brattleboro, that, that's the Women's Freedom Center. And we're so happy um, and proud to be affiliated with that, organi- that really great organization. Great. Thank you. The, the reason I wanted to do this conversation is that last week I attended the forum that both of your organizations um, hosted along with, it was ACLU Vermont, right? Okay. And the conversation uh, was around looking back at what happened last year with the widespread allegations of sexual assault uh, in the Chittenden women's facility by male guards, uh, which is of course such an overlap of the work of the Vermont Network and the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative. And so Ashley, if we could start with you, could you tell us a little bit about what happened with the allegations and kind of where we are today? Absolutely. So uh, a year ago in December um, of 2019, Paul Hines, uh, who works for Seven Days, did a lot of research and investigated claims of sexual uh, misconduct uh, at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility for both uh, women that lived there and also uh, female staff, um, and also some instances of that uh, behavior in the community where uh, women were supervised by the Department of Corrections in, in the community. And, and so that article, Guarded Secrets, was the accumulation of all of those conversations and work on, on Paul's behalf. He, he did a, a really great job 
with with the women and and how he represented that article and it really highlighted just shocking and horrific information and i think what was really difficult is that the community was really outraged and you know across the state we have one facility uh, for women and folks that identify as, as female crcf and so people from all across the state were were just horrified by what they were reading and then you have those of us because i am also formerly incarcerated i was incarcerated at that facility uh, at the chinon regional correctional facility um, so many of us who lived there and were incarcerated there were not shocked and appalled and really felt like we had been uh, screaming these concerns and these issues and these assaults um, and this victimization at the hands of people who have say over literally every aspect of our life and, and complete control over us at all times. Um, so we were not shocked and appalled. This is decades worth of, you know, information and, and reaching out for help and trying to lift this to the public eye. And so it, it really came, came out in a large way last year. Mm-hmm. And so I think the com- community forum that we had last uh, week was really to talk about sort of, you know, what's happened in the last year since that article came out. It was a collaborative effort between uh, WJFI, the ACLU of Vermont and the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence because we really partnered around these issues and the concerns around the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility, you know, last year and that that work has really continued. And so we really want to bring a conversation together, you know, given the global pandemic and the ways that it impacted folks across the board and, and impacted the facility, it impacted the independent investigation that was commissioned into those allegations. It impacted contractors from from being able to have access to the women. So then there was a lot of concerns that there was sort of no outside people allowed in facility um, and and what was happening to the women, what was going on. And so we really wanted to have a conversation around, you know, where, where are we now? What has happened in the last year? And, you know, as people start to settle back in and we prepare for a new legislative session, um, what was really the work going forward and how could community sort of re-engage in that work along with stakeholders and, and systems folks to really start making some meaningful change and, and really starting to address some of the systematic failures that, that happened. Yeah, and Karen, can you speak to the involvement of the network? And also within that, can you talk a little bit about the fact that there is such a high percentage of women that have been uh, assaulted or have experienced abuse that are then incarcerated. Yeah, you know the this is the this is how the network got involved in this. So many many years ago, long before I was at the network, maybe uh, almost twenty years ago now, the network developed a program called Divas D I V A S, which is designed to offer advocacy services for domestic and sexual violence survivors who are incarcerated and. You know, when we first started offering this service, it was the the women were housed, I believe, in Central Vermont, and then they were moved to St. Albans, and then most recently moved to Chittenden. Uh, so we've been a member of the contractor community that served women who lived lived in these facilities. And you know what we what we know this is no surprise, but it's it's vitally important to understand is that 100% of the women who we incarcerate in our state who live in state facilities are survivors of trauma. And most often they're survivors of horrific trauma, really, you know, and going back into their childhoods. 
domestic violence, sexual violence, child sexual assault. I mean, all kinds of trauma. And there's a direct relationship between their experience of trauma and the reasons that they're incarcerated. And we know that our laws are not necessarily trauma-informed and our systems haven't been trauma-informed. So we see so many women, we've seen exponential growth in the number of women who we incarcerate in our state. And every one of those women has a trauma history. And so how, how we became involved in this conversation has to do with recognizing the experiences of the women who live in facilities, but also recognizing that, that incarceration is not the way, is not the pathway for healing. I mean, I doubt it's the pathway for healing for many people, frankly, regardless of their gender identity. But for female identified people, incarceration is not, is not the path forward. And, and also, you know, we have systems that are not gender specific. And so I was just talking to a researcher the other day who was telling me that they're, they're working to bring a new risk assessment tool into the DOC that's gender specific because the current risk assessment tool is not gendered. And so the women test um, in terms of their risk, they test as if they're riskier, mm. actually are. That's this, the, the scientific skewing that happens because of this test. And so the belief is, is we use the gender specific risk assessment, risk analysis, that most of the women that we incarcerate, we find be very low risk. But the tool we use, you know, you filed the paper, paperwork, the tool we use currently, they test out higher risk. So we get into these conversations about, well, what would happen if we release these women because they're risky to the community. But we know from, from talking to them, we know from our relationship with the women who live inside the facility that they are there because of trauma. They're there because, because they have substance use disorder. They're associated with trauma. So for us, for the network, this feels like a grave injustice. And we also feel like it's not only do the women pay the most terrible cost, mm -hmm. but they also, but their children do, their families do, and ultimately all of us do, all Vermonters do. So it, it, it you know, the network's kind of passionate about this. We were part of, the other thing is, is this is the facility and everybody from the interim commissioner, um, I can't think of anybody who thinks this facility, the Chittenden Regional Correction Facility is an appropriate place to house people for any length of time. So we were part of this, uh, gosh, it's been probably 10 years now. There was a white paper, unfortunate name, a white paper that was written by a group of contractors that articulated the problems with the facility. And I, you know, I have to say, I think the DOC, you know, that works within a budget, they, they made many, many efforts to fix that facility, but it's not fixable. So, you know, still, Asha will talk about this, creatures coming up out of the drains, you know, in the showers still leakiness, drafts, not to mention the fact there's no outdoor space. Mm -hmm. Imagine, imagine, now just, I mean, just imagine the injustice of this. You've written, so let's just say that you needed food for your kids and you wrote a bad check, right? Or maybe you wrote a series of bad checks. You got arrested, convicted, put in Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility. You serve your time, but you can, now you don't have any housing, so you have to stay because you don't have any place to go. So now you're there for even longer than your time. And you, if, so imagine being someplace for two, three years and never going outside, never going outside. Why are we tolerating this? Yeah. Why are we tolerating it? It's, it's just, it's a human rights violation. And I know that the people at DOC would agree, but we, so we have to do better than this. Yeah. I think also the sort of tragedy of when you're talking about this like risk assessment 
but the actual risk that they are at when they're actually in the facility of sexual Mm -hmm. abuse or these conditions. The people that work at the DOC for the most part, like this is the same story, right? The DOC, the, fo- the folks who work at the DOC work inside a culture. The culture is highly sexualized. Mm. There's a change that needs to happen around, um, you know, this, the energies feed this highly sexualized culture. And I know that the DOC sees that as problematic. But when you have a highly sexualized culture and you have a place where people, where there's such incredible power differentials, uh, you know, 150 people, who are by law identified as vulnerable adults. They have almost no agency whatsoever. The folks that work there have 95% control over their daily lives. That kind of environment is a magnet for people who want to cause harm. Mm-hmm. It's a magnet. It's, you know, we know other institutions that, that are magnets for, for folks that um, want to, that, that feel the need to cause harm, that, that want to engage uh, in a power struggle that, uh, that plays itself out in, in sexual harassment because of course it has nothing to do with sexual desire. This is all power. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from the network's perspective, that's also another reason we are the network against domestic and sexual violence. So we would be interested in um, helping ameliorate the conditions there. Yeah. So people don't have to live in fear of being sexually assaulted or have to use sex to get the things they need. Yeah, thanks for that. Ashley, I just want to check in to see if you wanted to add anything around um, what Karen was talking about in conditions. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, of course, I, I mean, I agree with everything Karen just shared. And I would say, you know, I also want to lift up. I also do believe that there are many great people that that work in, in corrections. And I think that they're really, you know, especially under interim Commissioner Baker's leadership are really starting to be more transparent about those issues and, and really trying to uh, figure out how to address them. I think that there's a collective agreement, including by interim commissioner Baker, that that facility needs to close conditions wise. I mean, it's, it's been in disrepair for many years. You know, the, the leech is out of the drain, as Karen mentioned, and the sewage backing up into living units where people sleep and eat and, you know, the, the lack of outdoor space and the lack of space period, even inside. And, but what I would say is conditions aside, you know, where, where my opinion tends to differ from other folks is sort of the, the, what comes after we close the RCF. Yeah, I mean, I would say that that where uh, pretty much everyone agrees that the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility should be closed. I think the next piece of the conversation and sort of where we're at now, and we, we discuss this a little bit in the community forum is what next? What, what do we do after that? Um, and I think it's a real opportunity for systems folks in our legislature and stakeholders and communities to really talk about the fundamental ways in which we respond to harm and the way we respond to trauma. You know, I have a lot of conversations with folks about, you know, victims of the harm caused by these women who are incarcerated there. And I always say, you know, we are, we are uh, short serving victims as well, because shouldn't they have all of the options too? Why is our system, why is it appropriate for our legal system to tell a victim of, of crime, I use the word harm, uh, how they should heal or how they should respond to that or what they need, mm-hmm. right? So your your options in cases like domestic violence are essentially like incarceration or almost nothing, mm-hmm. right? If, if you want to access a tool outside of, you know, or in a system, uh, th- that ends up being your option. And so why are we not providing 
our communities with a, a myriad of options mm-hmm. around how we respond to crime and, and harm. And also, when does that, that role of victimization end? So because I committed a crime, I'm no longer a victim of domestic violence or sexual violence or childhood sexual assault or human trafficking. Because, you know, using my own story as an example, I'm a victim of all of those things. So I'm a victim of domestic violence and I'm a victim of sexual assault and I'm a victim of human trafficking. And I also like committed crime and I committed harm and was held accountable for that. But it's really this dichotomy between, you know, bad person, bad act and like victim, good person didn't deserve it. And how do we really break that down? Because it's a spectrum, right? Of human experience. Mm -hmm. We all commit harm in different ways. We we all uh, are the recipient of harm. And how do we really start talking about if we want to create the, I'm going to use air quotes that you can't say, but safety, what does that really mean? Because if we ask Vermont communities, if I go to, you know, uh, uh, our rural, very rural sections and walk onto the farm and say, say to the farmer, what does safety mean to you and your family? The first thing they are going to say is not to prison. It's not going to be sort of this very punitive, right? They're going to talk about like, I need to make sure my family's fed. I need to make sure that my ground is worked. I need to make sure that my, my animals are fed. I need to make sure that the folks down the road who come into my field and steal some of my crops because they can't eat either, like they have food too, right? So safety is really about how are we intervening? How are we meeting people's basic needs? How are we providing access to treatment and resources and education and responding to trauma in actual healing in actual opportunities of growth and accountability. Prison does not create safety. It does not create accountability. Mm -hmm. And so this is really an opportunity to talk about what do we do next before we invest millions of taxpayer dollars in a new prison where that culture is just going to transfer over, Mm -hmm. right? Let's have a conversation about how we can do better for Vermont communities. I think everyone in Vermont deserves the right to thrive, not just survive, not just make it. Like this is Vermont. We we have the option to choose to create communities that are thriving. Mm. And that's really the conversation I want to see happen for folks. Yeah. People don't cry for tears that weren't shed. Doesn't stop when you close your eyes, and our big old clock will keep on ticking till it dies. Can you hear the hum of the hummingbird? Can you smell the breeze carrying?
just joining us. We are spending the hour with Ashley Messier from the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative up in Burlington, Vermont, and with Karen Transgard-Scott. She is the executive director of the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. We're going to return to the interview, and in this second part, we talk about the difference between abolition and reform, and we also get into a conversation around restorative justice and intimate partner violence. Thanks for listening. On the website for the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative, you say that you look for, uh, or you want a world without prisons, and that it's an abolitionist organization. And so I would love to have you talk about what you mean by that, and then the differences between reform and abolition. Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe it's easier to talk about those differences first and then talk about why we're an abolition organization. The way I try, I like to personally explain the difference between reform and abolition to folks is to say that reform is the idea that something is broken and you can fix it, right? That if we just change certain aspects or we do something a little different over here and over there, that we can reform, that we can make this thing that already exists different. Abolition is the idea that it's not fixable. It's essentially a, a dismantling needs to happen and a rebirth and new creation needs to happen. When we talk about the, the prison system and our, our legal system, the reality is, is that our prison system is created to replicate slavery, right? Like our, the prison industrial complex is simply for profit. It was to profit off human bodies. It was to replicate an economic driver. It's inherently racist. It's inherently born out of white supremacy. It's for-profit, even state systems are for-profit, not just private corporations. And so any system born out of that ideology and for that purpose is not fixable, right? We have to, to make a decision to step out of that system and to create a system that is that does prioritize humanity and dignity above vengeance and punishment, that does prioritize healing and well-being above capitalism and wealth and profit. And so abolition is the idea that we dismantle and recreate. And so that that is also the vision, right? And that's it's a hard conversation for some folks, right? Like for hundreds of years and decades, right? It's been really ingrained in us that like we need prisons to keep us safe and we need this over-reliance on incarceration and policing to keep us safe. And that's just not an accurate depiction of what we actually need and what actually does equal safety. What causes folks to be safe? If prison actually worked in almost the year 2021, 
they wouldn't exist, right? If they had worked as a deterrent, if they had worked as rehabilitation, if they had worked as treatment, we wouldn't need them. So our organization really believes in looking at hyper-local communities, looking at how do we respond to the underlying and root causes of why people commit harm? Why do people commit crime? Mm. Right. Looking at that trauma, looking at the lack of access to education and wealth, looking at systemic racism, looking at all of those pieces and to really start addressing the root causes. And in the meantime, we're also very clear at WJFI that that we work very closely with corrections and we really value that relationship because while abolition is our vision, there's also a road to get there, mm-hmm. right? And there are real human lives in the meantime who are in facilities, who work in those facilities, who are part of those systems. And we really need to walk down that road together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Karen, I want to ask, and this is related, I'm going to read something from a recent New York Times article that just came out. You may have seen it, both may have seen it. And it's related to this question of, you know, what do we do about these systems that are not working for all people? The article was entitled, Is the Legal System an Effective Solution to Domestic Violence? And it was on December 15th in New York Times. And this quote is from, uh, she's the director of the Gender Violence Clinic at the University of Maryland's Law School. And she says, we were putting hundreds of millions of dollars into the criminal legal response to intimate partner violence. And for that investment, it still got less of a drop than what was happening to other crime rates that weren't receiving a specific investments, Ms. Goodmark said. That's a problem. In fact, since 2012, the number of domestic violence cases has stagnated rather than continued on its downward path, hovering between 1 million and 1.2 million cases. In 2018, cases topped 1.3 million or about 20% of all violent crimes in the US that year and cases of rape and sexual assault almost doubled from more than 430,000 in 2015 to more than 730,000 in 2018, making it one of the most violent years on record in the last decade. I was wondering if you could speak to this conversation that is happening a lot around intimate partner violence and restorative justice. Some people say transformative justice. I understand those two things to be different, but I would love for you to speak to that and and your thoughts on that. And then Ashley, if you have any thoughts on that too. Well, I appreciate you quoting Lee Goodmark. She's somebody who we um, rely on to provide that kind of research and in-depth analysis. Uh, And she's, she's, you know, she has an affiliation with the Vermont Law School. And so she's been to Vermont many times. We've heard her speak many, many times. We know her well. And her analysis is, is, I think it's pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. We haven't had that kind of research done here in Vermont, but we certainly I think that those that that trend is also present here. We've been incarcerating people who cause harm in their intimate partner relationships for you know decades now, and the movement to end gender-based violence has been married to the criminal legal system for a really long time. And and I think that we we were very well intended. I know we were very well intended. I know the people that wrote the Violence Against Women Act, and I know that the intention was really um, a noble intention. And there's been many good things that have come out of the Violence Against Women Act. But we married ourselves to the criminal legal system. And then we created this, not even a pathway, but a highway between survivors and the criminal legal system and the people that cause survivors harm without any off-ramps. And so what we see in Vermont, I was at a meeting a couple of years ago with 
with some folks from the Women's Freedom Center, and they were they were saying sixty to seventy percent of the survivors that that are served in um, Wyndham County have nothing to do with the criminal legal system. They don't want anything to do with that. And I think that's that bears that's uh, that I think that's true across Vermont. And why is that? Well, it's you know it's not an indictment of the criminal legal system. It's a square peg in a round hole. The system is built to do some things. It's not necessarily the best fit for situations involving domestic and sexual violence. Acknowledging that some folks who cause harm cause really significant harm, mm-hmm. dangerous harm, and some people kill, kill, they murder their intimate partner. You know, Ashley said this earlier, we need more options. We need, survivors just need more options. We know what we're doing right now is minimally effective. We, Lee Goodmark, I, you know, she has always said in her research, she found that the folks that we're sending off to prison come, come out of prison better at abuse. Than, than when they went in. The other thing that I think that we, you know, we are part of a society that views people as being either good or bad, like this bifurcation of everything. You know, the binary rules, the rules our world, you're male or female, good or bad, rich or poor, you know, there's just, it's just so um, polarizing. And so when we, when we first we're devising these these laws and we're really taking a look at people who are causing harm in relationships. We we put them in the bad bucket. And survivors have been telling us for years, for decades, that the people that are harming them are not all bad, that there's really good things about them and that they love them and that they wish they would stop being violent or they're or they're or they're not all bad, but they don't want to be with them anymore. And they're afraid because that's they're at high risk. So we build systems that really only respond to this one aspect of their personality. We ignore the fact that most of them grew up in violent homes. We ignore the fact that there's they're whole human beings with lots of lots of things going on, the same as me and the same as you. Mm-hmm. And so these systems that address only this one aspect of of their personality personality and and their their behavior, this reality that that survivors really want a, other alternatives. They really want alternatives to the criminal legal system in terms of seeking justice and the emergence of restorative justice in, in more, you know, in more mainstream culture has come together all at the same time. And I agree with you, restorative justice and transformative justice are not the same things. And so this, for the, for the network, you know, this has been a big shift. We were, we advocated strongly years ago for the, us to have a law in Vermont where you couldn't do restorative justice use a restorative justice um, model in situations involving domestic violence. Our viewpoint has changed. Mm-hmm. And now we are, we are working really closely with um, the community justice centers, with our member organizations, with people in communities to think about what would it mean to uh, restorative justice to be an option, a really easily ac- accessible option for survivors who want their uh, the person who's causing them harm to participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know that there's a current study going on, right, with PAVE, and is the network involved in that too? We are. Around trying to get survivors thoughts on it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's that going on. There's, you know, the Vermont Law School is also the home to the National Center on Restorative Justice. That's new. Okay. They're starting to get geared up, and um, there's conversations about what their role will be in in this system. Every time we sponsor a, a learning opportunity around restorative justice, uh, you know, every seat or every square on Zoom is filled. Really interested in learning about it. 
We do have one program in the Hartford, coming out of the Hartford Community Justice Center that they're doing circles of peace with um, a set of folks who are causing harm in their intimate partnerships, their intimate partner relationships who they don't, they really don't meet the criteria for, for any kind of prosecution. So, but they have caused harm. So they're doing these circles of peace and that's looking really hopeful. And there's other places around the country that are doing, doing restorative justice work with domestic violence um, survivors and their harmful partner and the, the outcomes look great. I think that there, there will always, there are people that are very dangerous. You know, we can't deny that. And we can hold their humanity uh, while simultaneously limiting their access to the people that they could harm. When you think about, you know, what we do with people who cause great, great harm, we, we imprison them, we remove them from society. And I, there may be other thought ways for us to think about handling those folks. It doesn't have to be, it certainly doesn't have to be in the current prison system that we have. I couldn't agree more with, with Ashley. We have a very close and, and, and um, supportive relationship with the Department of Corrections and recognize the really, really good people that work in corrections. I think the jobs are really, really hard. And they're very, very dedicated people. And I think probably most of them would not object to us doing things differently. Every time you look outside your window, everything is just the same as before. You are turning round and you see, it's a sad day for sure. Taste the fruit of me. Make love to all you see. Ah, would you make a, make a, make a wish on my love? Ah, would you make a, make a, make a Show my love ah, Would you make a, make a, make a wish Show my love ah, Would you make a, make a, make a wish Show my Make a make a make a wish on my
was FKA Twigs with a song called Sad Day, and she has been in the news lately for a lawsuit that she has taken out against the actor Shia LaBeouf for uh, assaulting her and for causing uh, a lot of emotional, psychological abuse in that relationship. And she has actually said that the money that she's uh, suing him for is not for herself, but that she will put that money toward survivors of abuse. She also said that she also has this quote that was in a, this New York Times article that I had mentioned earlier. She wrote, he brought me so low below myself that the idea of leaving him and having to work myself back up just seemed impossible, she said. And I think when people that are in the limelight come out and it just, I think, helps to shine a light on abuse and how common this type of abuse is. And Karen spoke to a lot of the complexities with the um, criminal justice system and some of the different ideas that people are investigating right now. We're going to go to the last part of the interview with Karen and Ashley. And we talk in this last part about the community and, and what we can do toward thinking about both incarceration and uh, victims and survivors of violence. I once interviewed this uh, person that worked on Rikers Island a couple of years ago, and he worked actually in sort of human resources. His work was around creating stress-reducing activities for guards. And his interview was really interesting. And he was telling me that the average life expectancy for guards at, Rik at Rikers, or, or it could have been, a, I'm not sure if it was a national statistic, it was something like 55. And I think this also leads me into the next question because he also talked about how guards, and I know this from people I also work with in Springfield, Vermont area, that there's a correctional facility there, that sometimes people who are working in these positions know the people incarcerated. They're coming from the same communities and so that also leads us to then bigger questions around what do we need to change about our society? And I think that actually kind of we're talking about our just basic needs getting met. And I think this is a question for both of you is around this issue with Chittenden facility, plus also thinking about violence um, and harm that is done. One of the the things that keeps on coming up for me is how are we getting our community more involved? As, I, as someone who has worked in crisis center services, I know that we only like talk to a very small majority of people that are experiencing violence and that so many people we never hear from. So there's this struggle to like, well, how do we change our relationships to each other and in our community? And so I'm wondering if either of you have thoughts around that in the in the work that you're doing and involving the community. Yeah, I appreciate that question. Um, you know, one thing I also do want to mention, and and I uh, use the word uh, officer, so it's been mentioned to me that versus calling them correctional guards, that it's more respectful to call them correctional officers. Language does really matter to me, and I usually ask the same that we don't refer to our incarcerated people as inmates or prisoners. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say, in context of correctional officers and their experience, you know, they they also have like one of the highest rates of suicide, 
uh, out of job categories in our country. And so that to me really speaks to not only the experience of folks we incarcerate in those facilities, but of folks who live in those facilities and their rates of like domestic violence and their own intimate partner relationships and those pieces. And so any system that is toxic is also toxic for the people that work there, not just the people that live there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's like really important. And that really is a great segue into talking about community and how do we engage our community, right? Because like we do have folks that work in these facilities and folks who are incarcerated at these facilities and maybe they went to high school together or you know maybe they know each other from the town or maybe their family, right? We have like, that's my cousin, yep you know, those kind of dynamics. And if we're really honest about Vermont, you know, I think, I think Vermonters, we joke that like, we can't have a conversation with each other and talk about like five people and figure out we're related by the time we get to like the fifth or sixth person, because Vermont is made up of like these really amazing and eclectic, like small towns. And we really do get involved in each other's lives and communities. And, you know, um, Vermont is a very interwoven place. And so how do we really think about stepping out of this individualized idea, right? I think the US, we really think about, like Karen was talking about that bad apple concept. It's like bad people don't do the crime if you can't do the time, you know, some of those comments. When in reality, especially in context of intimate partner violence, it's a community problem. It's a community responsibility, right? Mm. There's this wonderful quote that I love and I, I, never know who to accredit it to. I heard it one day and, and don't know like the, the author of this quote, but it says, you know, true justice is when all parties in an act of harm have an opportunity to heal the offender, the victim and the community around them. So intimate partner violence does affect folks. It, it affects the kids that then go to school and the people that then work at school, or it affects, you know, the family around them, or it affects the job or it affects, right? So it's not as simple as, oh, it's just at home and it stays behind closed doors. That's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. And especially it doesn't work that way in Vermont, right? Where we are also interwoven. And so, you know, we love to engage in communities because we also believe nothing about us without us none of these conversations should be happening. None of these decisions should be happening without directly impacted folks being in leadership roles and being at the table where these conversations are happening. And I think that that's also how we really got back to talking about, oh, wait, maybe we should have restorative justice as an option, right? Because survivors were saying, they were saying very loudly, this isn't working. It's either like the criminal legal system or nothing and that doesn't work for me. Right. And so, you know, it's really about how do we bring community to the table? How do we involve the people that these laws, these systems, these decisions impact the most? How do we bring them not only into the conversation, but to the table, to the decision making so that communities feel not only that they have a say, but they become invested in the conversation. They become invested in the changes that they wanna see happen in their communities. I don't think anybody in Vermont would say, I don't want to live in a healthy, thriving community, right? I don't think like anybody would say that. And so then the goal is great. Then how do we get there? How do we get there? And I think like one silver lining of COVID is like, we saw that that neighbor thing happening again, right? Where it's like, you knew that Sue, three houses down from you on the dirt road, didn't have a car, couldn't get to the grocery store. So you started bringing her groceries when you went and got yours, right? Or we saw like all these mutual aid efforts and we saw folks checking on each other and, 
everybody was in this shared experience, right? Across the state and across the country of a pandemic. Everybody was isolated. Everybody was struggling with, with food and, and basic needs and, you know, loneliness and lack of connection. Mm -hmm. I think part of it too, and I teach at UMass undergrads in public health. And I think that when we do anything around issues around incarceration, there's often an automatic belief that the people in there deserve to be in there. And I think that's part of that community education too. Like, who are these people? And really humanizing people because they're, and I think that the, the thought that a lot of my students have is a common thought of just automatic, like, well, they, I'm sure the, the assumption of guilt or the assumption that they should just be in there. Karen, do you want to speak to that point around community? Yeah, I think that I agree. I mean, I'm just, you know, always in awe of Ashley and appreciate everything she just said and agree with it. I, I do think that right now we're in a situation where there is a common belief. I mean, we, you know, for how many generations now we've been watching cop shows on TV that tell a story about people who commit crime. And it's a, it's a really, it's a singular story. It's a one-sided story. It's not, our popular culture inevitably fails to represent the complexity of the lives of people that are actually living in an incarcerative setting. And so when we think about what's happening at corrections right now, there's two things that come to mind for me or in, in our prison system. One of them is that the prisons are doing the job that, that we are asking them to do. They're doing exactly what we're asking them to do. They're taking people who are inconvenient and removing them from society and keeping them away from society without really too much, you know, I mean, and I'm speaking to my fellow citizens, we're not really thinking about what are the costs, you know, both in terms of direct costs and indirect costs for incarcerating people. What are the costs to society? What are the costs to the children of people who are incarcerated? So we have to, we have to recognize that when we, you know, when I, when I rail against the idea of, of a prison, I'm talking not to the people that are working in the prison or running the prison. I'm talking to the citizens that give, that are, are, are telling the system what they want it to do. And, and so one of the ways they, you know, that we do this is through the legislative process. We, we have a culture that, and I, you know, the network has participated in this, but not, but we have made a conscious choice to not, to not expand the criminal code. So we've built this incredibly complex and far-reaching criminal code in relationship to domestic and sexual violence with so many really, you know, complex responses. And again, this, this singular way of handling domestic and sexual violence that is many times not that helpful for survivors. You know, the other thing that I think about, I think about, I'm thinking about Ashley's comment earlier about, about abolition and how organizations are abolitionist or how some people might disagree with abolition and the, and this idea of, and where that intersects with the idea of people who, who are impacted being at the decision-making table. The network is really happy to follow the lead of WJFI. We, we support the mission and we are in a position to play a certain role within that conversation. And, but if you were to ask the network today, do, should we shut the women's prison? I think that we would agree, yes. We saw with COVID that it was possible to release almost half the women from the prison. They needed a lot of support in the community and we were able to help them do that. And the network, um, WJFI, the Vermont Works for Women and Mercy Connections all came together to create some re-entry um, opportunities. 
But the, this is a system that is unraveling. It's unraveling across the country. Same with our law enforcement system. Things are unraveling. In fact, many systems are unraveling. And this is the, this is the perfect time for us to understand that there's a pivot happening in our society. There's a, and to push that pivot so that we're focused on humanity. We're focused on community. We're focused on the power of community, the power of, I mean, the prison system would change tomorrow if community said, we don't want it to do what it's doing things the way they're doing. We don't want them to do what they're doing the way doing now. We want them to do something different or we don't want them to do anything at all. We want to build a completely different system. That would all happen if we just said that. Mm-hmm. Now more than ever is the time for us to see each other's humanity. Thank you so much. Um, we're coming to the end of the time. Ashley, there is a, um, so is for, if people want to get involved or know more, there is there, is, am I right in saying there is a campaign to shut down Chittenden, right? Or where, where would I, where could we direct them to? Maybe it's better to say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's been a conversation now uh, against new prison construction, right? So even before sort of Paul's article, there was a lot of conversation around and against uh, new prison construction in Vermont. I think that that, you know, changed a little bit. The focus has become CRCF because it is the facility in Vermont that is in the most disrepair um, and in the most need. And so Yes, WJFI supports uh, no new prison construction. We we are working toward uh, a campaign specific around that and around closing CRCF and also really interested in sparking a community conversation around what that looks like and what that okay. means for folks and, and really wanting to work with, with corrections in the legislature and, and our fellow organizations like the network on how we can really do something very different. Okay. versus investing millions of dollars in a, in a new prison where essentially the same things that plague us right now will just plague us in a very expensive you know, new prison where we could do something very different with that money and much more effective yeah. and much more beneficial for Vermont families and communities. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that does it for my interview with Karen and Ashley. Ending there on how important it is to get the community involved in these issues. We here at Indigo Radio want to thank both of them for their time and all the work that they do. We're going to link to both the Vermont Network, where Karen is the executive director, and also the Women's Justice and Freedom Initiative, where Ashley is the executive director. We'll put those on our Facebook so you can find out more information if you want to get involved. And I know that both of them would be really open to a Brattleboro conversation around these issues. I can say that Indigo Radio supports all the work that both of these organizations are doing. And yeah, let's get these women out of that children facility. They don't belong in such a place. And also I want to add the importance of believing those that have experienced abuse as both Karen and Ashley point out an extremely high number of women in jail and prisons are survivors of abuse. It's something like 80%, if not higher. And I know having worked in this field that there is still a lot of work to do around the stigma and shame that people can experience. And we really, as a community, need to do better in seeing if people are okay and also believing them. 
So we're going to go out with Tina Turner, Simply the Best. I've found a new love for old Tina Turner songs, and she also, as probably people know, is a survivor of abuse. All right, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. 